KPFK in Los Angeles, this is Living in the USA. I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Later in the show, the people who say America is a Christian nation had some big victories at the Supreme Court this term on school prayer and on taxpayer funding of religious schools. Sarah Posner will comment on the endgame of the Christian nationalist. She's the author of the book Unholy, about Christian nationalists and their politics. Also, what is to be done about the Supreme Court? David Cole, National Legal Director of the ACLU and Legal Affairs Correspondent for The Nation, has the best answer. Organize and vote. But first, on Tuesday, the January 6th committee held another sensational hearing, this one on the origins of the January 6th Stop the Steal rally. We learned in much more detail how Trump came to send that tweet at 1.30 in the morning after a wild meeting the night of December 18th between the crazies, this lawyer Sidney Powell and General Flynn, who wanted to convince him to order the military to seize voting machines, while the White House attorneys, led by Pat Cipollone, told him he couldn't do that. Everything else they tried had failed. Their 60 lawsuits had failed. Their efforts to get the state legislatures to reject votes for Biden had failed. Their efforts to pressure Secretary of State to find more Trump votes had failed. Uh, they had no evidence of election fraud. And now this final gambit sees the voting machines had been shot down. The electors had voted in the states on December 14th. They had voted to make Biden the president. That was now a uh, a fact, Biden was the president-elect, it was time to concede. And it was at that point, at 1.30 in the morning, that Trump sent that tweet, summoning groups he knew were violent to come to Washington on January 6th for a rally. So what we learned was it was this action by Pat Cipollone to defeat the plan of Sidney Powell and General Flynn that led Trump to call the mob to Washington. Well, he had exhausted every conceivable far-fetched uh, whack job means, uh, what he concluded was that Chairman Mao was correct, <laughs> that political power grew out of the barrel of a gun. Therefore, he summoned uh, what he knew were armed and violent far-right neo-fascists, really, to Washington to uh, help him intimidate uh, the vice president and the Congress uh, during what should have been just the ceremonial revealing of the electoral uh, vote tally. And another striking fact, his call to come to Washington did not include a public announcement that he planned to march on the Capitol uh, with his supporters to try to prevent Congress from certifying Biden as the president-elect. That part he kept secret from White House lawyers and staff. Why would he keep it secret? Well, we know uh, this is as much from uh, Cassidy Hutchinson as from Cipollone himself, that Cipollone told uh, Hutchinson on the 6th after the rally, after he heard that Trump might be going down to the White House to please stop him because it would, you know, breaking every law imaginable. Uh, he didn't say this, but clearly what he feared was that uh, his boss would obstruct the peaceful transfer of power. So Pat Cipollone and the rest of the White House lawyers and staff did not know that this speech was going to include a call to march on the Capitol. But somehow the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers and the Three Percenters did know that. How did they know it? 
the big reveal from my point of view in this week's hearing was that the committee was able to find online communication, not through Twitter, but through some uh, encoded secret means, made clear that they knew that he was, he was going to call for a march on the Capitol. And that's what they prepared for. Now, there were obviously some uh, informal intermediaries. The name Roger Stone came up. The name you've already mentioned of Michael Flynn came up. And uh, what uh, the White House staff didn't know was that Trump was going to ad lib these lines, which he did in his speech. And in the tweet, the middle of the night tweet, all he said was, it, it will be wild. But the Proud Boys and uh, and the three percenters and so on took that as a call to violent insurrection. Well, it didn't it didn't come in a vacuum uh, when he had been asked in his debate with Joe Biden during the fall uh, pre- preceding fall about what his message would be to groups like specifically the Proud Boys was part of the question. His answer was stand back and stand by. Now, if you're on standby and the president says, come to D.C., it will be wild, you know, essentially been ordered into action. And that is how these groups took what he said. So after the failure of all the legal and semi-constitutional efforts, the crowd really was the only weapon he had left. You said he advancing the Maoist principle that power grows out of the barrel of a gun. Of course, he knew that the Uh, Proud Boys were an armed group, but he was also told specifically on January 6th, right before his speech, this thing that people were not coming through the metal detectors because they wanted to keep their weapons. And he said, get rid of the metal detectors. So he knew he had specific information from the Secret Service that the crowd was armed. And that was the crowd that he ad-libbed the calls to go to the Capitol with him. And the committee is very insistent that Trump himself controlled and directed the crowd on January 6th. He said, go, and they went. And four hours later, he said, leave, and they left. Yeah, uh, well, the committee uh, has taken its mandate really very seriously on what is the root cause of the January 6th disturbance, you know, to use a euphemism. Uh, The root cause was that uh, Trump ordered it into existence and could stop it, you know, with a, a single tweet. We, we, we know that he did. Then uh, they understood and have dramatized, have made clear, have documented that all of this was part of his larger effort to hang on to power, despite the fact that he lost and that he knew he had lost the election. I'm still a little unclear, and the committee really hasn't explained what Trump wanted to happen at the Capitol. In the initial tweet, I think the idea was to pressure Mike Pence, let's say intimidate Mike Pence, into going along with the fake elector scheme. But he learned that morning, before the rally, that Pence was refusing to do that. We wish Pence had announced that a week or two or a month before when he had when he had decided. But Trump knew at the time of the rally that Pence was not going to, to submit to pressure or intimidation. So then what was the plan? Was there a plan? The uh, Constitution requires that Congress meet on January 6th and certify the electoral vote. What does the Constitution say if Congress doesn't complete the counting of the electoral votes on January 6th. I think it doesn't say anything. No, it says nothing. I don't think Trump, uh, who was not a famously clear 
thinker <laughs> had a particularly clear idea as to what exactly was to happen if, as he wished, we now know, he himself had led the marchers into the capital? Did they plan then to somehow intimidate Pence, intimidate the seated members of Congress? I mean, we don't know, and I don't think he had a very clear idea, but it, it is clear that he sought in some way to disrupt the process, maybe have uh, uh, the st- throw back to state legislatures the decision as to who won the state. I mean, that would have caused, you know, instant chaos uh, beyond imagining, but... But it would have kept him as president for a while, at least. And during that while, other things could happen. It could. And much as we hate the Supreme Court, I think the Supreme Court would probably, with the exception of Clarence Thomas, have ruled that he couldn't do that. Uh, But, uh, you know, who knows? Who knows what he would have done then? Well, there's another view of of what might have happened. A, A sitting president was asking for civil war. This was not Rachel Maddow, this was not Noam Chomsky, this was Brad Pascal, the director of Trump's campaign at the end in 2020, a sitting president asking for a civil war, the head of Trump's campaign. On one level, uh, America is hugely divided. Trump is responsible for uh, raising a lot of those divisions uh, to a kind of crisis level beyond which we have have not been before, except in 1860 and 1861. Uh, But Pascal is right. If Trump felt the only way he could hang on to power was through the exercise of violence, and that's pretty implicit in what we now know about January 6th, he was, I think, willing to do that. So we have Pat Cipollone, White House counsel, trying to stop Trump. We have Brad Pascal, his campaign manager, saying that this was an attempt at the Civil War. We have lots of other, virtually all the White House staff, saying he should have conceded on December 16th when the states uh, held the meeting of the electors. I noticed that none of these people said anything at the time that Trump was being impeached. They all waited until, you know, July 12th uh, to make this public. Uh, July 12th of the following year. (laughs) Yes, yes. So, I mean, this is... really reprehensible on their part, it seems to me. They knew they knew that this was uh, illegal and dangerous and terrible, and yet they kept quiet until they were subpoenaed. They were. Uh, they were. I mean, you know, a few of them uh, sort of, you know, woke up and smelled an- enough of the coffee. I mean, the egregious attorney general, Bill Barr, did s- say publicly to the Associated Press uh, on December 1st that there was no evidence of fraud. Uh, you know, I mean, some of them had, uh, you know, just 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 enough uh, connection to empiricism that they were willing to say what in fact had happened, but not many, not many. The, of course, there was a second half of this hearing on Tuesday where two there were two live witnesses named to Jason von Tattenhove and Stephen Ayers. Tattenhove was a former associate of the founder of the Oath Keepers, who had left five years ago, who testified what that the Oath Keepers were a violent, insurrectionary, uh, white nationalist group. And Stephen Ayers was a nobody, a former Trump supporter who just showed up, not part of any violent group, but was arrested in the Capitol, charged, pled guilty, 
a kind of a, I don't know, how, so how would you describe the, the presence of these two and their testimony? Well, uh, I mean, uh, for Van Totenhove, if that's his, if I've got his name right, uh, what the hearing provided was sort of uh, a way to express in general uh, a view from the inside as to what these far-right armed groups are about, wanna, you know, uh, delusional wannabe militia leaders, uh, sheer bigotry. His, his breaking point was when he found uh, a group of his uh, fellow Oath Keepers uh, denying the existence of the Holocaust. Yeah, that was a uh, funny breaking point, I thought, yeah, for an well, Oath Keeper. Look, but... Whatever it takes. Uh, <laughs> so for him, this was just, and, and for the committee, this was just kind of a, uh, a, a way to express the kind of danger that such groups pose uh, to our nation and our society. For uh, Stephen Ayers, uh, he was kind of the every man of the Trump contingent. He got his information, he said, through uh, social media, such as it was. He fell for it. He believed all this stuff. And then he found out the real world consequences of acting on it, even though his acting on it seemed to be basically just being swept along in the crowd, losing his job and, 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 and so on, and saying, you know, <laughs> but for his delusional beliefs. He was a normal guy who worked at a company for 20 years, cared about his family. And, you know, since the last few months, he said, and I think it's a very good line, that he's learned to look at the world without the blinkers on. And now he understands uh, that the stuff he was hearing uh, from Trump world uh, really wasn't true. Jamie Raskin had a magnificent closing statement, I thought, where he concluded that the crucial result from this hearing, from all of these hearings, will be the next step, the measures the committee recommends to, as he put it, fortify our democracy against attempts to take elections away from the people. What do we know about this? Well, there is still legislation somewhere on Capitol Hill, and as we now know, <laughs> over the last year and a half, uh, any important legislation is basically somewhere on Capitol Hill somewhere. Uh, that would at least clarify uh, the ceremonial role of Congress when it certifies uh, the electoral vote. But the larger issues uh, that were in a Democratic bill to protect the right to vote, uh, make uh, voting more accessible, uh, that sort of stuff, you can't get it through the Senate without getting rid of the filibuster. And of course, you can't get rid of the filibuster unless Joe Manchin and, and Kristen Sinema uh, are willing to do that, and they're not. And so, you know, the larger efforts to protect the right to vote, you know, are, are stymied. And then in some states, the, the very Trumpniks who uh, were proclaiming these conspiracy theories are running for office, including the chief election official, the secretary of state in some states, the uh, county registrar and other states. And so that's going to be on the ballot in November as to whether those people can be entrusted with uh, getting uh, people the right to vote and uh, an accurate vote count. And of course, the deeper problem here is the Electoral College itself. The fact that there is this archaic system created by, you know, old man, white slave owners in 1789 that made all of the drama of January 6th possible in the first place, and a smarter country, smarter democracy, would not have an electoral college. 
Well, I mean, and that's a subset of the general problem that our, our constitutional system does not uh, guarantee majority rule. The, the Senate is, is constructed in a way uh, even more preposterous than the Electoral College. And of course, the Senate originally, up until 1913, senators were to be elected uh, by the vote of state legislators, not, not, not uh, the public at large. Uh, so we have so many choke points uh, between majority rule and what we're actually experiencing. So this takes us to the midterm elections, which we talk about every week. There's a new poll out today, the New, new, new York Times poll, their first poll about voters' attitudes about the midterms. The assumption of all the pundits was that since Biden's approval rating is you know, historically low, we've talked about this before, and nearly 80% of the voters say the country is going in the wrong direction, that this would be a Republican washout uh, in in november but this poll startled at least the new york times by reporting that among registered voters 41 percent they preferred the democrats to control congress and only 40 percent preferred republicans to control congress what do you make of this astounding poll finding well the law in the largest sense contrary to everything we've been saying about american politics for the last 30 years <laughs> Democrats are winning the culture wars and losing the wars on economics. Uh, the Republican extremism, uh, as uh, manifested recently in the court overturning Roe and in uh, the Republican opposition to any serious form of gun control, has really galvanized uh, you know, the Democratic constituents, college-educated voters, so much that the support for Democrats has, as this poll reflects, surged since the last poll before the latest round of uh, Republican uh, Taliban-esque fundamentalism <laughs> on, 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 these, uh, on these cultural issues. But two things, the state of the economy, the state of inflation, although gas prices now have seriously begun to fall, which is not showing up in the current uh, inflation figures yet, certainly cuts against uh, uh, the Biden administration and the Democrats. And even with a lead nationally in, uh, would you like to have the Democrats or the Republicans control Congress, the way Congress is structured with the districts and the uh, gerrymandered districts and uh, you know, uh, no proportional representation uh, and the Senate, uh, the Democrats need, I think it's been said about a six to eight point lead over the Republicans uh, in the popular vote to actually control Congress. In this poll among registered, not likely voters, among registered voters, it's a one point lead. So the poll has, has striking new news, but the composition of the electorate is really pretty familiar. The Democrats tend to be women, young people, people of color, especially African-Americans and college educated people. We used to call this the Obama coalition. And Republicans are basically older white men who didn't go to college, the white working class men. And uh, Trump has, as we have said many, many times, intensified their connection to the Republican Party. White college graduates overwhelmingly are now Democrats. That actually was not the case 20 or 30 years ago. No, you're right. Uh, it, when, when they contrast uh, the political allegiance of different demographic groups, white college graduates are more inclined to vote for the Democrats by a margin uh, a little in excess of, of 20 percentage points. On the other hand, white non-college graduates or college non-graduates 
are inclined to vote uh, for the Republicans by a margin a little over 30%. Yes. But there's also one, one change in here, which is to say the Democratic margin among Hispanics yes. is just 3%. Yes. Difference. And that is a huge change. And Hispanics don't really vote on cultural issues uh, and aren't really pushing you know, the abortion thing one way or the other, uh, but they respond to economic conditions as, in many ways, much of the nation's working class. That's, that's a real issue for Democrats. So that's the latest New York Times uh, poll. Now it's time for news of the class struggle in California, regular feature of this broadcast. Today's headline, The Ruling Class Strikes Back. A coalition of Los Angeles hospitals uh, launched a campaign on Tuesday to repeal a wage ordinance in Los Angeles that boosted the minimum wage for thousands of healthcare workers to $25 an hour. They say this will have a harmful effect on medical care across the city. The new law was sponsored by uh, the SEIU United Healthcare Workers West. They'd collected more than 145,000 signatures. Their plan was to put this on the ballot, a $25 minimum wage for healthcare workers. But two councilmen led by Marquise Harris Dawson decided to move more quickly and get the city council to pass it into law which happened uh, just uh, last week. And a few days after that, the California Association of Hospitals uh, announced they want to put their own initiative on, on the ballot uh, to repeal this thing. This is a wage increase for security guards, receptionists, nursing assistants, housekeepers, groundskeepers, janitors, and others who work at privately run hospitals, clinics, and nursing facilities. It's not for the public hospitals. So the ruling class is striking back at the, at the uh, healthcare workers. Yeah, and uh, you know, I, I think the hospital association is emboldened in this by the way in which uh, Uber and Lyft were able to get an initiative passed, presumably to benefit uh, their drivers actually to screw their drivers uh, but the, the theory here behind this is that with enough money on television telling lies, you can undo something which the public actually supports. Uh, so, uh, and this is, this is in the city of Los Angeles, I'm, I am sure, uh, where Karen Bass is on this. It'll be interesting to press Rick Caruso on this. News of the class struggle in California, a regular feature of this broadcast. Harold Meyerson covers the January 6th hearings, among other things, for the American Prospect. You can read him at prospect.org. Harold, thank you for today's commentary. Always good to be here, John. Now it's time for your Minnesota Moment, news from my hometown of St. Paul that you won't get from Sean Hannity. A Minnesota judge on Monday struck down several of the state's long-standing abortion restrictions. He said they were unconstitutional. They included a 24-hour waiting period and a requirement that all abortions be administered by doctors. The ruling comes as Minnesota providers prepare for increased demand for abortion from patients in surrounding states, North and South Dakota, Iowa, and Wisconsin, which are all expected to ban or restrict the procedure in the wake of the Supreme Court's reversal of Roe. While the right to an abortion is protected in Minnesota by a 1995 state Supreme Court ruling, Republicans in the state legislature have passed several laws regulating and restricting the procedure. 
In 2019, a coalition of abortion rights advocates and medical providers filed a lawsuit challenging many of those laws, and on Monday, a district court judge ordered the state to stop enforcing them immediately. The statutes that are overturned include requirements for informed consent, a 24-hour waiting period, a two-parent notification mandate for minors, and a requirement that all abortions, including those induced using medication, are done by a doctor. The decision also reversed a requirement that abortions after the first trimester be performed in a hospital. This has been your Minnesota Moment, a special feature of this broadcast. It's the same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. The people who say America is a Christian nation had some big victories at the Supreme Court this term. On school prayer, the Supreme Court said it was just fine for a high school football coach to pray at the 50-yard line after the game. And the court also ruled that taxpayers must fund religious schools if they are funding nonsectarian private schools. For comment, we turn to Sarah Posner. She's the author of Unholy, How White Christian Nationalists Powered the Trump Presidency and the Devastating Legacy They Left Behind. It's just been published in paperback with a new afterword about evangelicals and the January 6th insurrection. She's a reporter with Type Investigations. Her reporting and analysis on the religious right in Republican politics have appeared in the New York Times, the Washington Post, Rolling Stone, and The Nation. Sarah Posner, welcome back. Thanks for having me again. Well, first, let's talk about these two decisions subverting the separation of church and state. The school prayer ruling, it was about a public school district in Washington state. Tell us about coach Joe Kennedy and his praying after the games, and what's behind coach Kennedy's lawsuit? Well, for several decades now, the religious right has sought to undermine church-state separation, particularly in public schools. And one of the ways in which they've sought to chip away at it is to make it increasingly easier for school officials or people associated with the school in some way to pray, pray at students, pray with students, pray in a way that seems like the the school itself or the school district itself is endorsing this sectarian prayer. So the Coach Kennedy case was just the latest in a string of cases about school prayer. And the court very blatantly disregarded documentary evidence in the form of photos and video that Coach Kennedy was not engaging in private prayer, as the majority opinion stated. He was, in fact, praying with the students alongside him. And the issue was, did the students feel free to leave? What the 
dissent said was, you know, no student is going to feel free to leave. Anybody who's been in school or played school sports knows that the students are going to feel free to leave if the coach says, let's pray on the 50 yard line. So it's really a a very troubling example of the direction in which the court is moving on these kinds of church state separation cases. Yeah, there was a Interesting letter to the New York Times from a rabbi in South Carolina who said, the number one issue that I as a rabbi have been contacted about by students is about sports, Jewish students who get benched because they don't join in the Christian team prayer before or after a game. Jewish students who don't get playing time because they won't go to the Christian pizza lunch offered at school. Jewish students who lost their starting spot on the team because they missed a game or even a practice for the high holy days. Things like this are going on at a lot of schools, apparently. Absolutely. And I've heard from people, too, where, you know, their kid or reflecting back on their childhood, they were one of the only Jewish students, or if you can, can imagine also, you know, other religions, Buddhists, Muslims, Hindus. And I think part of the thing that's happening here is the religious right has long sought to reverse these early 1960s decisions by the Warren court, holding that school prayer and Bible reading are unconstitutional because it's an imposition of a sectarian religious view on students in public schools. They've been long trying to reverse that by chipping away at it. But at the same time, culturally, they've already chipped away at it in places where evangelical Christians are in basically the majority in these communities all over the country. And a lot of these coaches and teachers have been told you know, by the religious right that they need to be evangelizing people. They need to be evangelizing students. As you can imagine, and I think it's not hard for anybody to imagine, particularly in the sports setting, the kind of coercion that goes on, even implicit coercion that goes on in those kinds of situations. No, I imagine praying at high school sports events is not the end game that the evangelicals are seeking. Where, Where would they like this to end up? It's not just football games. They would like there to be prayer in the classroom. So uh, you walk into homeroom at 8, 10 in the morning and your teacher has a prayer to start the day, perhaps before or after the Pledge of Allegiance, right? They would like that to be, they would really like that to be the norm. And I think that they haven't contemplated what they would do if the teacher were another religion and trying to impose that on the students, But I think that the Supreme Court is so stacked in the favor of Christian prayer that they're not really worried about it for the moment. And the other big decision was on state funding for religious schools. This case came from Maine, where the court ordered a school district to pay parents for their children's tuition at a private Christian academy. Uh, where the curriculum is biblically based with religion, quote, integrated through all content areas. I understand there are 37 state constitutions that ban the direct or indirect use of taxpayer money for religious schools, and all of that now seems to have been repealed. So this is a huge decision. Uh, Tell us about what's behind the parents in Maine who won this case. What's really important for your listeners to understand is that the heart of all of this is a longstanding attack on public education. 
And both of these cases are part of that longstanding attack on public education, although in different ways. What they want in Maine and all over the country is for private school voucher programs or tuition assistance programs to equally fund sectarian religious schools and secular private schools. The program in Maine did not allow the funding, that that kind of tuition assistance or vouchers to, to go to religious schools, only private secular schools. And um, the claim in the case was that was uh, violated religious freedom. And uh, it's not at all surprising that this Supreme Court ruled in favor of funding the religious schools because the, the balance between the Establishment Clause, the, the, the clause in the First Amendment that provides for the separation of church and state, and religious freedom, which is another freedom of religion, another clause in the First Amendment, the balance between those two clauses has been tipping way in favor of religious freedom based on the political advocacy of the religious right, but also their very successful legal campaign to tip the balance away from the separation of church and state such that that would be eliminated and elevating religious freedom. But it's really important to understand in their view, it's religious freedom for a certain group of Christians. The main case had a lot of particularities about it that makes this less than a mandate that all states must fund religious schools. In Maine, the problem is the state is so rural that more than half of its school districts had no public high school. So the state provides funding for parents who don't have a nearby public high school to send their kids to a private school. A lot of states don't do this. For instance, in California, there's no state funding for any private school. So this decision does not apply to California and states like it. And Chief Justice Roberts, always the moderate when it comes to extreme uh, right-wing uh, evangelicals, suggested that there were some other steps the state of Maine could take. They could open more public high schools. They could create boarding schools for the kids who live too far away that would be public schools. They could have remote learning for kids who live too far away from public high schools. And all of this would make it unnecessary for them to fund any private high schools. But the ruling is as long as they're funding some private high schools, they must fund religious high schools. Tell us a little bit about the curriculum in religious schools. Well, in conservative Christian private schools, the curriculum is based on what they would call a biblical or a Christian worldview. And if you've ever seen the curriculum for any of these schools, and you know, obviously there's some variation between them, but in the main, what the students would learn uh, is that you know, America is a Christian nation, God ordained America as a Christian nation. You have a duty as a citizen, as a patriotic citizen to defend the Christian nation. So this Christian worldview would be incorporated into every aspect of the curriculum. So in biology, you would learn that evolution is just a theory and that, you know, creationism is the way the world came about. That Adam um, and Eve saw the dinosaurs walking around. <laughs> right. It's not just limited to, say, the history and government class that you would learn things from a Christian worldview. You would similarly learn biology English, literature, all of those classes would be taught from a Christian worldview. 
these schools, many of these schools would produce students who would, you know, be expected to go on to, to colleges like Liberty University or Regent University or some other uh, Christian college or university. Um, and that is happening at taxpayer expense, right, in Maine at least, and probably this will happen in other places too. Whereas prior to these cases, and this case in particular at the Supreme Court, um, it was verboten for the state to fund that kind of education because that would be like saying, your ta- it's okay to spend your taxpayer dollars in the pursuit of this sectarian religious view. All of that is changing under this new series of cases that have been, you know, decades in the making, um, where the religious liberty of conservative Christians is elevated over the separation of church and state. Of course, there are some Jewish schools that are very happy with this decision. There's Muslim schools as well. And Muslim schools as well. As well. I looked this up. Thank, thank you, Wikipedia. There are 235 Islamic schools in the United States. There are something like 860 Jewish day schools, but of course there are thousands and thousands of Protestant evangelical academies, and there are more than 6,500 Catholic schools. I guess all of these could require taxpayer funding under the main ruling if this became a general policy, and I can't imagine the states could afford private education for all the religious families in America. Well, I'm not sure that the, even the voucher programs cover the entire, you know, in every state cover the entirety of the tuition. Yeah, the, ala- the, the main one is $11,000. Yeah, that's a, that's a lot. First of all, not every state funds, you know, provides these kinds of vouchers. But I would be sort of curious to see what happens when evangelical Christians find out that Islamic schools are being funded by their taxpayer dollars, because I might imagine, you know, because I was a little surprised I got a press release from the Council on American Islamic Relations after this case came down, this main voucher case came down, praising it. They were very excited about it. But I'll be very curious to see if there's some kind of objection to the schools of other religions being funded by these kinds of programs. It's kind of hard to imagine that the Supreme Court would say that some religions could be funded and others couldn't. But but of course, we thought we would never get to this point. Well, also, I think if this term taught us anything is that this Supreme Court is not guided by stare decisis or principle of any kind, that the case is just what they decide to do with it. It doesn't matter what the facts are, as in the Coach Kennedy case, and it doesn't matter what actual history is, such as in the Dobbs case, overturning Roe versus Wade. So what is the Christian nationalist endgame on church-state separation? If government was shaped by their vision of the religion clauses of the First Amendment, what would their government look like? They would want government to be run by people who have what they call a Christian worldview. So they would want the president and the representatives in the Senate and senators and people running agencies. This is not just at the federal level, but at the state and local level, that people with this Christian worldview would enter government, and they would say, run the health department from a Christian worldview. So the health department could stop giving out condoms in its safe sex program, or they might give out ivermectin instead of 
COVID vaccines, which is uh, something fairly popular in white evangelical circles that, you know, vaccines are bad. Um, I mean, there are a lot of white evangelicals who've gotten the COVID vaccine, but it's pretty common also for them to be opposed to it. Again, public schools would definitely be a target. Prayer in public schools, teachers evangelizing to students. This is obviously like a worst case scenario, but it's the scenario that they envision. I don't see much that's going to stop this Supreme Court from potentially overturning the early 1960s school prayer decisions. There are two decisions from the early 1960s invalidating mandatory school prayer and mandatory school Bible reading in public schools. Overturning those cases has been in the crosshairs of the religious right for decades. And now we know from this term that this Supreme Court is pretty undeterred in overturning recent precedent. I wouldn't be surprised to see them overturning those cases. And then it would definitely be a free-for-all in public schools. But I think what they would like to see ultimately is every facet of government, you know, the government that runs agencies and courts and that sort of thing, as well as things like public schools, reflect their view of the Christian nation. America is a Christian nation. It's our duty as a public school teacher or as a member of Congress to evangelize people and bring them to Christ. It would be like it would be a very coercive, theocratic way of everybody else being forced to live. Sarah Posner, she's the author of the book Unholy, How White Christian Nationalists Powered the Trump Presidency and the Devastating Legacy They Left Behind. It's just been published in paperback with a new afterword about evangelicals in the January 6th insurrection. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you, John. It's the same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. What is to be done about the Supreme Court? With a solid six to three majority right-wing justices, maybe you heard the news, abolished the constitutional right to abortion this term, struck down a hundred-year-old law in New York restricting who could carry guns in public, and attacked the separation of church and state. For comment, we turn to David Cole. He's National Legal Director of the ACLU and a professor at Georgetown Law School. He writes for the New York Times, the New York Review, the Washington Post, and he's legal affairs correspondent for The Nation. David Cole, welcome back. Thanks for having me, John. Well, the court's big decisions this term were immensely unpopular. On abortion rights, for instance, only 35% of Americans favored the Supreme Court abolishing Roe. In the gun case, more than three quarters of New Yorkers supported the state's limits on carrying guns. So what is to be done about the Supreme Court? Justice has served for life. There's nothing we can do about that. But the number of Supreme Court justices can be changed by Congress and has been changed several times in the past. Many of our friends, especially at The Nation, favor expanding the court from nine to 13 or something like that. Uh, what do you think about expanding the court? I don't think expanding the court is uh, in the cards. Uh, and, and I also don't think it's um, really a good idea as a matter of principle. Look, it's not in the cards uh, 
because you need extraordinary political, sort of lopsided political will to do something like this. The, the only time a president proposed packing the court, adding justices to change its uh, ideological valence was the 1930s. The president was FDR, uh, one of the most popular presidents in history. Uh, the court at that time was as unpopular as it's ever been because it was repeatedly striking down laws that were protecting consumers and workers from being exploited by big business. Uh, and even then, FDR's proposal to pack the court could not obtain majority support, even from you know Democrats. And so the idea that somehow Joe Biden is going to be able to enact something with a with a Congress uh, in which you know the Senate is controlled by uh, Joe Manchin, you know, it's just it's 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 ludicrous. Uh, it's there's just no chance. But then also, I think it's a I think it's a mistake as a matter of principle, because. You know, the reason we have a court is that it is supposed to be an institution that decides matters not by sort of partisan vote. That's what the Congress does. You know, that's what the president does. But the justices are supposed to decide cases on their merits, not looking at the partisan uh, outcomes and the like. Do they always succeed? No. But should they uh, try? Absolutely. Particularly if you think a court is important to protect individual rights and liberties of those who can't protect themselves through institutions that are responsive to the political process. So if you, if we, you know, if the Democrats add uh, four justices this time around, then the Republicans get control, they'll add two justices to get, get it in their court. And then the same thing will happen every time you have a different uh, majority in, in Washington you know, then you've just turned uh, the court into another political body, and then it doesn't really serve its function. Okay, you're not for expanding the court. What do you think should be done? Well, look, I don't think that we should ever accept a Supreme Court decision as the end of the story. It never has been the end of the story. It never will be the end of the story. I mean, look, look at how the anti-abortion folks responded to Roe. They didn't say, oh, no, you know, the court has protected the right. We, we might as well go home. They organized. They lobbied. They uh, fought for incremental change in a whole variety of, uh, of venues, in, often in state legislatures, state courts, the, the nomination process. They made it a political issue in presidential campaigns, and eventually they prevailed for now. We need to respond in the same way. We need to organize, lobby, and fight about the rights that we believe in. Instead of trying to fight for packing the court, which is you know, not going to happen and a bad idea, let's fight for the right to abortion. Let's fight for separation of church and state. Let's fight for the notion that uh, states should be able to pass reasonable gun laws. And what history shows, what history shows is that the court very rarely parts company with where the, the country is on fundamental issues. And when it does, if the country responds, the court responds. So we need to be pushing back through all the forums that we have. And there are many. Let's talk about some of those forums. Even Alito agrees the Constitution does not bar states from protecting the right to abortion. So 
our focus, as you say, is got to be in the states. And one of the things we can do in the states and that you are doing is legal challenges in state courts. That's the job of the ACLU, along with its partners like Planned Parenthood. Some states have constitutions that protect abortion rights. Let's talk about some of those. I was surprised to see that Utah, one of the most conservative states in the country, which has now banned abortion, has a state constitution adopted in 1896 that provides that, quote, both males and female citizens of this state shall enjoy equally all civil, political, and religious rights and privileges, close quote. And Utah's constitution also guarantees that state residents have the right to plan their own families. That would seem to include the right to choose abortion, doesn't it? Absolutely. I mean, that's, and, and we are pursuing that claim in the Utah state courts. And there are a number of, of state uh, constitutions that have provisions that protect liberty or protect family decision making. Uh, that um, I think properly read, uh, protect the right to abortion. Let me also point to Florida, which has a state constitution that includes an explicit right to privacy. Two thirds of people in Florida support the right to abortion. Privacy was not accepted by the current Supreme Court as a basis for uh, abortion rights, but couldn't, couldn't it be the law in Florida? Absolutely, I and mean, the federal constitution creates a floor. States cannot go below what the federal constitution protects, but it does not create a ceiling. States can and often do go above in their constitutions and their laws what federal law requires. And so, you know, part of the of the battle here is shoring up those states that do protect abortion and, and making uh, sure that there are constitutional protections there so you can't get, you know, a, a sort of a fallback. Uh, and using state constitutional arguments to challenge anti-abortion laws that are enacted in states where the constitution protects the right. So what's the ACLU doing in Florida? So we sued in Florida and we got an, an injunction from the trial judge. Florida is, of course, appealing and you know, only the Florida Supreme Court will ultimately decide it. But uh, there's this, I, you know, I think a very strong argument there that, that this state protects the right of women to decide to terminate a pregnancy. And one more state that really surprised me, Kentucky. The Kentucky state constitution provides a right to bodily autonomy as well as privacy. What's the ACLU doing in Kentucky? Again, we're suing there as well. I mean, we are suing everywhere we can uh, to protect the right uh, to abortion and relying on these state constitutional arguments. Now, you know, whether we succeed in the end will, will depend on what the state Supreme Courts in those states uh, decide, but, you know, they, and some of them are quite conservative. So, you know, it, it could be a, a tough row, row to hoe, but it's an important way to push back uh, and, you know, and to hold states accountable to the promises they put into their constitutions. Taking legal challenges to state courts is the ACLU's job, but of course, there's a lot of other things that we can do. Well, absolutely, right? It's, it's, it's about using every forum available to you to advance the values that you care about. And, you know, I mean, this is how the marriage equality folks got marriage equality. You know, 1970s, the idea that, that the Constitution protected the same-sex marriage was really unthinkable by 2016 when the court recognized that it was essentially inevitable. And, the, and how did that happen? By gay rights groups organizing, coming together, 
and engaging in systematically in advancing the notion that two people of the same sex can love each other in, in the same sort of committed way uh, as, as anybody else. And, and they did it through amending family law, and they did it by getting domestic partnership benefits expanded, and they did it by getting state uh, legislation enacted, and they did it by advocating in state courts, all before the Supreme Court recognized that right. And the NRA did the same thing with respect to the right to bear arms, uh, which was rejected by Warren Burger, a Republican-appointed conservative Supreme Court justice. He rejected the notion in 1970s. He said, the notion that the Second Amendment protects an individual right to bear arms is one of the greatest frauds perpetrated on the American public in my lifetime. And, you know, in 2008, the Supreme Court recognized that fraud as constitutional law. And how did that happen? It happened because the NRA organized its membership to make the right to bear arms a central issue in political campaigns, in who gets elected and who doesn't get elected. They went around state by state and advanced the notion of a right to bear arms so that by the time it got to the Supreme Court in 2008, mo- almost all the states had already recognized uh, a right to bear arms under their state laws and state constitutions and made it easier for the court to recognize what Chief Justice Berger called a, a fraud. So, so look, you know, we just can't accept Supreme Court decisions as the end of the game. We have to realize that we need to organize and fight and step up and vote and get others to vote for the rights we believe in. And if we do that, those rights, I think, will, in the end, be protected. It won't happen overnight. It's going to be a tough road. There's going to be a lot of pain and agony. Uh, There already has been, and there will be much more. But but I think we can get there if we fight back. And the other thing I know is if we don't fight back, we won't get there. So we only have one choice. And there's a terrific book about this. It's called Engines of Liberty by David Cole that lays out this whole history of organizing that changed the Supreme Court. And we have the midterms coming up in uh, a, a few months, and there we need to focus on the states in a way that Democrats have not done for a long time. We need to elect Democratic state legislatures and also Democratic governors, especially in battleground states where Republicans control the legislatures or are close to controlling the state legislatures. In particular, let me say Arizona, Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania are crucial battlegrounds right now that will also be, of course, crucial in 2024. So governors who can veto Republican state legislatures' efforts to abolish abortion rights are Tony Evers in Wisconsin, re-elect Tony Evers in Wisconsin, re-elect Gretchen Whitmer, governor in Michigan, in Pennsylvania, elect Josh Shapiro, governor, and of course in Georgia, elect Stacey Abrams for governor. We have a lot of work to do. The ACLU is doing its part. It's up to voters to do their part. David Cole is national legal director of the ACLU. Any final thoughts here? Well, just just to sort of double down on your last point there, you know, we are a democracy and the, the, the single best way we can respond to decisions we don't like is by voting. And people, you know, sometimes say, oh, voting, that's, you know, haven't they uh, undermined the right to vote? Haven't they sought to take away that right from us? Yeah, they have. Um, but we have to 
push back. And, and voting and getting others out to vote is the single most powerful way that you can bring about change in this country. So absolutely critical that we vote like our rights depend on it, because they do. Uh, and we send a message uh, through the next election and the election after that and the election after that, that decisions that overturn you know, a right central to the equal status of women in this country uh, are unacceptable. And the decisions that hamper our government's ability to protect us from mass shootings are unacceptable. Uh, and if we do that, uh, I think we'll get where we want, because uh, this is, at the end of the day, a democracy. A flawed democracy, but a democracy nonetheless. David Cole is National Legal Director of the ACLU, author of the book Engines of Liberty, and legal affairs correspondent for The Nation. David, thanks for all your work, and thanks for talking with us today. Thank you, John. That's it for today's Living in the USA. Our social media maven is Renee Reynolds. KPFK's programming traffic director is Matt Perez. Thanks as always to Rye Cooter for our theme music Mambo Sinuendo. Living in the USA is recorded and produced at our Blythe Avenue studios in Los Angeles. If you miss part of this show or any of our recent shows, you can listen online anytime you want at livingintheusapod.com. I'm John Wiener. We'll be back next week talking about politics, thinking about the left, and living in the USA. Music